Well, first of all, first of all actually, really, the uh, the open source as such is an extremely good way of uh, progressing in this uh, direction, you know, to a better security for everyone. Because as a matter of fact, most of the time, it's free. So you cannot put constraints on the money on the wallet if you want everyone to defend himself. Because we think like rich countries, right? But think about Africa. If you want to protect like Africans uh, in their universities and they have a GDP that is like one fraction of what uh, uh, GDP of US was a, a century ago, how do you want them to compete in terms of means? It's impossible, right? We have to level the game and leveling the game through open source is the key. With me on the show today is Philip Umo. Philip is the founder of CrowdSec. CrowdSec is a free, modern, and collaborative behavioral detection engine, and it is coupled with a global IP reputation network. It leverages the crowd power to generate a global IP reputation database to protect its user network. Philip, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me on the show. That's a delight and a pleasure. So let's start with, with CrowdSec. Um, where did you get the idea for CrowdSec and what prompted you to create it? Well, actually, you know, we were using other products for a while with my CTO in my previous company. It was an MSP, right? We were doing a high security environment and um, we kind of stacked a lot of different products together and we glued them basically. And uh, when we had a signal coming from our WAF, we would put in the, in, the, in the database, in the data lake, when we had a signal coming from the firewall, when the signal coming from fail to ban, when the signal you know, coming from everywhere, any violation would actually trigger some um, new entry in the data lake. And there was like kind of an engine pulling out whatever happened and fitting rules into the firewall. And that came from a very long time ago as an idea. It was back from 2002, something like this. I thought to myself, wow, having a static rule set in the firewall totally sucks. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's stupid as, you know, as it can be because you should dynamically feed your firewall with whatever is happening. Uh, okay, some fundamental static rule set makes sense, but globally it's outdated already in 2002. So 2014, we make it a reality. Having something that is more dynamic and reactive uh, as to what's flowing into your network. And, um, but it was awfully complicated. Honestly, the stack itself was uh, 14 different components and all. So to put a customer in production, we would do something like two months, which was, you know, not really appreciable for anyone, neither the customer nor us. So we, we thought with my city, what could we do better here? How could we get the juice, but not the hassles? And we were like, okay, well, Maybe the point is to have different scenarios and be able to identify them and, you know, block the attack and just this, you know, like kind of an extended IDS system with a cool grammar. But on top of that, we would obviously feed an IPS, which is super easy. And then we would share all the signals all together because, you know, what do you do when you have like 3000 IPs that you identified as bad? Yeah. You store them somewhere. Okay. You put them in an IP set and you feed your firewall with it. Super. But. It's not really relevant or helpful for the others, right? And should your data be very qualified, they would be useful for others. So how do we share that all together? And on top of that, with regulation, we have to deal with, like GDPR in Europe is a big thing. And IP address is considered a personal data. So, you know, all of this mingled together up until we've created this product. So 
CrowdSec is a intrusion prevention system, correct? Yes, at the very core, it's uh, it's two components. An IDS, so the intrusion detection system, uh, for those that are listening and are not familiar with the lingo, we usually call that IDPS. So it's an intrusion detection and prevention system. So you detect on the one end, you look into logs and you dig and you find things, patterns that, uh, that are signs of stuff you don't want happening on your network or services or servers. And then you feed a second component, which is an IPS. And this IPS is really in charge of not letting this thing lose or happen anymore into your network. And those are the two you know, vital key components of the open source project, product actually, it's more than a project. And um, it's feeding globally a CTI system. Meaning, okay, if you find something aggressive towards yourself, we need to know about this IP. We would like to know about this IP if you feel like sharing with us. And if you share with us, we'll do the curation and send you back a block list of IPs that have similar behavior towards similar technological footprints as you have. And um, this part is not yet open source. It's about to be. We're working on that. Um, but as you know, like creating open source product requires a lot and a lot of extra attention around how you code. And for now, we are going super fast on that part, and we cannot really like do the extra job to make it like super clean for open source release. So the reason I asked about if it was an IPS was because obviously for people that work in this space, they're familiar with IDS. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if there's someone who is working, let's say they're working at a business and they're currently using an IDS like um, Suricata or Snort or Bro, and they have kind of a curated rule list already, or they have the rule list, mm -hmm. uh, the VRT rule list from, from Talos. Is there a way that they can take what they have and integrate that into CrowdSec as far as the rule set goes? Uh, yes and no. I mean, for example, we were asked a lot in a similar fashion to, uh, to integrate like METR attack and stuff like that. Uh, signatures. We don't really do this for another reason. So you have an easy bridge because you know you know how the pattern is done. So we code it in YAML. So you know porting one to, in, uh, to the other is pretty pretty obvious and simple. But what we wanted to do mainly is have a sort of metasploit of defense, right? Some sort of toolbox that you can customize to your own needs. So we're we are dealing indeed with the cybersecurity threats, but you could as well deal with like your car or your TV bugging or a plane, you know, deviating from what it's expected to do. It's just all in logs, it's, it's behavior we look into. Uh, and we found that actually an YAML description system allows both two things. Like, first of all, people can write their own scenarios, which is cool, you know, based on, our, on their uh, business uh, orientation, for example, like a web shop will have a different uh, uh, stake from, I don't know, a large hosting company that wants to prevent uh, FTP, FTP, or SSH breaches. Um, so we wanted to make it easy. So, you know, some scenarios in some of those rule sets are very uh, complicated or sometimes very uh, coded by experts and stuff. We didn't want that, you know, limit to, to kick in. And so we ported most of what Fair to Ben was doing. We created a lot of new things, and our community is actually creating other scenarios. We don't totally uh, rule out the fact that we should be compliant or compatible with some of the existing rule set. It's just not a main focus for now. It's it's super easy to adapt any scenario you like into CrowdSec. So. Okay. So why go open source with CrowdSec? That came from a reverse, a reverse engineering thinking, right? So. I'm a businessman, but before that, I used to to learn my trade into uh, 
you know, engineering school. So I'm really a, a product of an engineering school trained and into pen testing and all. So when I betrayed the, uh, the path and went the dark way into marketing and all, I was like, okay, I still have my love and my crush for the open source, but it has to make sense. Don't go open source for, don't go open source for bad reason, right? So here it totally makes sense because what we're after is a network effect. We need to have as many people partaking into the network contributing to the development of the software, right? So in order to make this a reality, the first thing you have to remove is the money friction. So it has to be free, right? So that's a starting point. But it can be free and closed source. That would be possible. But on top of that, people to contribute. Because, for example, I don't have an, uh, any uh, AS400, like from IBM. Yeah, I don't have any in my basement. I'm not about to buy one. IBM is not about to sell me one, uh, ship it over the post office or whatever. So... I cannot possibly create like relevant scenarios for S400. So if I want people to be able to partake into this, I have to let them contribute to the software, patch it, modify it, you know, make pull requests more. And the third reason why we go open source is because we think that uh, security, cybersecurity is a global threat. It's, it's not just something you can solve uh, locally at your office or whatever. Like, you know, Linux was needed on a large scale to make the internet happen. Uh, we have the same problem with cybersecurity. If you want to benefit from this space on a large, uh, in, on a longer term, we need to have this uh, as a free software. So all of this contributed to, okay, it's obvious it has to be free. It has to be open source. It has to be MIT license. If you go open source route, let's go it, you know, let's go for it, frankly. So there's no, uh, for, again, for the listeners, there are several types of open source licenses, MIT being probably one of the most open ones you can think about. You really have no constraint. If you want to take the software, put it on a nuclear missile and send it over somewhere, I could not prevent you from doing so, period. So that's why we went open source. That being said, the second logical question would be how do we make money, right? Because it's always the counterpart. So I'm expecting you will ask this question. Yeah, actually, you were, you were leading right into it was, okay, you're an open source project, you give everything away. How then do you guys leverage that to be able to earn money so that you can pay your bills so that you can eat? Yeah, because, you know, in open source, there are two schools. We call them schools. Like, it's a bit like the Witcher uh, in the similar, similar game. It's, you know, you can go for the Wolf, you can go for the Cat, you can go for whatever. Well, here, there is one school saying you should be a bearded guy wearing a robe, going into the forest and uh, feeding from edible moss and never, ever make money out of what you do because it is the real spirit of open source. I'm saying to this bullshit, right? I think the real, the real path now, if you want to have quality software maintained over time, is have experts, uh, you know, working on it. And those guys cost a lot, obviously, because they have brain carrier paths ahead of themselves. So if you want to attract the best and keep them, you have to have a business model, which leads us to how we make money. Well, we make money because basically we are stacking together the biggest ever CTI network on earth, right? Because Every user that is decided to share with us that signal they are blocking contribute to a huge database, which gives us a, a real-time insight over what's happening. So to be fair, we decided that we would share back to the people that are contributing for free as well. So, you know, you're not the product here. It's really, it's, it's coming back to you. I mean, everybody is helping everyone else. But if you don't share... You can still use the product or use the CTI or use whatever we have in the database, but you have to pay a subscription for it, basically. And we can add also some extra goodies like this. Like, for example, say, 
Um, you're contributing into the scenario of HTTP uh, shenanigans detection, right? So whatever it is, cross-site scripting, SQL injection, uh, you know, credit card stuffing, credential stuffing, you name it. Boat harvesting, scalping, no, 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 no. Well, you subscribe to all of this, you're feeding us back with all of this, fine. But maybe to protect yourself, you want to have extra layer. Maybe you don't want any Tor exit nodes, right? Maybe you don't want any VPN exit nodes. Maybe you don't want IPs coming from whatever country for whatever reason, because maybe you don't deliver that. Well, fine, we'll let you mix match more things into your specific IPS and protect yourself even better, even further. But the core of it, CTI, IDS, IPS, is free for everyone to use. Okay, so to kind of pull back from the CrowdSec uh, focus for a while to more on you, when did you first kind of discover and learn about open source? I was way back, you know, like mid-90s. Um, I, I, I had my, I remember I was, there was this CD stuff, we could engrave CDs, right? And then, you know, flash things on them and, and eventually uh, distribute them around ourselves. That was super cool. But except Windows was extremely unstable at that time. And I learned about both Linux and uh, SCSI, SCSI, which was like a bus, a super stable bus to burn you know, DVDs and CDs. I was like, wow, we should use this. So I started to tinker with it on my machine. Eventually got a very stable configuration. I was like, yeah, that's way, way more stable and way more efficient on certain things, right? Than, than Windows. So uh, I worked my way out, and in the school also we were using only Unisys, uh, which was actually, they were really bad ones, like really, really old ones that were running on MIPS. It was MIPS OS. My God, that thing was terrible. But whatever. So I was very, very familiar with Linux and uh, Unisys and a bit with BSDs, and uh, I loved it. I really loved it. And I, I'm the kind of user that uses every kind of, of you know, OSs. I really have no specific preferences. I use them for what they're the best at. So for example, my firewall is a Linux machine. My uh, The computer I'm talking to with you right now is a Mac. Uh, and side by side, there's a Windows, which is my gaming ring and so on and so forth. So really, I, I'm open-minded as you can be. Um, so, But later on, we developed a few softwares with my CTO, uh, namely Naxi, which stands for Nginx Anti-SQL, uh, Cross-Site Scripting and SQL Injection. Uh, and a few other projects and that were released and the company got like visibility out of it and we had people patching it and reporting bugs or security vulnerability eventually. And we loved the model. We're like, okay, it's not because you're free that it doesn't cost anything. It's not because you're open source that you're losing your, your intellectual property and so on. All of this is the old lingo from the old companies out there, you know, with a lot ton of lawyers and few ideas and a lot of budget to buy all the people around that are bringing new blood at the table. So yeah, I just love it. I love what it has become. I know that we have some problem to solve internally in the open source community. We won't name anyone, but someone that has been a main contributor to the thinking seems to be not such a good guy sometimes. And they are heroes. Like even if they behave harshly sometimes, I'm thinking about Linus, obviously. This guy is a hero. He changed internet forever. Or the guy that developed PHP. Come on, they are maybe they didn't make a, a hell of money out of it, but they changed the the internet and the way we interact with things forever. That's that's a legacy, and that I find it so cool. I kind of view OSs from the perspective of being pragmatic in that they're a tool. And if I think of my toolbox that I have in my garage, when I open it up, it's not just full of hammers. I have screwdrivers. I have wrenches. I have yeah. hammers. So I, I really like the idea of using the best tool for the job. Um, now, I also really like the idea of 
you know, if, if Linux is not good at something to then work on it to make it better for that. So it's not so much, let's just leave everything as it is. No, I still want development, but for me in my daily life, I'm going to try to use what I think is the best for that task. Yeah. And, you know, to, to add to this, it's really not about like having any uh, posture here, because for example, the software we're talking about, we are actually porting it to Windows. And we don't have any problem with that or, or Mac OS or whomever want to bring it to whatever. It's fine by us. It, it's not a stake of companies or whatever. Cyber criminality is everywhere. It's like the third biggest GDP in the world we're talking about here. So if we are not bending all together at a huge scale without having any, uh, you know, barrier like, oh, I'm a fan of, you know, BSD versus whatever Windows, we, we need to get rid of this. You know, the playground, our playground is digital. Our life became digital. If we cannot protect ourselves, our kids, our businesses from cyber criminals, we lost a battle that is way beyond whatever, you know, uh, opinion we have on who's doing things right or wrong. Yeah, and because CrowdSec is trying to get input and feedback from everyone, it would make sense to have the system be able to run everywhere so that everyone can participate. Instead of just saying, we want as many people to help as long as they only use this one operating system. That doesn't seem to, to jive with the idea. No, no, no. And besides, if you look at what's happening lately, whatever you see in Microsoft, they're helping the open source community. I mean, about GitHub, okay. Who can complain about what be, uh, became of GitHub? GitHub is still GitHub. There's no problem, right? They are just founded like forever. There's no problem whatsoever uh, in the foreseeable future. And Microsoft is, is giving a hand to all the guys that are doing open source uh, across the globe, us included, you know, and I find it great. I mean, that's the best of both worlds. Besides, if you run on the last uh, Windows 11, you can see that there's a, a sub, uh, line of subsystem that is fully featured and you can run pretty much whatever you want seamlessly. So I don't see any more barrier, any more, you know, log even logical barrier or software barrier in between those worlds. And I'm really happy about it. Same for macOS, you know, it's built on a BSD base. Fine. The guy found it was the most stable, the most the, the cleanest to you know stack upon and have a great interface, a great UI. I'm super happy about it. As a user, I find it's a great step forward. So on the BSD and Linux front, what distros and uh, BSD versions have you used before, and do you like? Uh, I'm I'm actually a very big fan of Debian forever. I know it's not suitable for every use, but I, I use it on a personal level for my computer, for my firewall, for stuff. I'm super at ease with it. I'm pretty proud of, of what's happening around Debian. Yes, I know we all have the saying that, you know, packaging Debian most of the time is in the age of buying alcohol and driving a car because it's super old, but uh, it's super stable. This thing is the OS of the world, basically. So, yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I dug the two um, BSDs as well, not BSD namely. I, I love the, it's super clean. I mean, man, that's really curated. That's what I call curated. That's, that's clean. Yeah. Um, I also like uh, all the variations. Uh, for example, I'm using Ambient, which is a variation of Debian. Uh, I used uh, in the past distros like, uh, wow, so many of them. So many were so uh, unusable and stable or whatever. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, those, those are really one that stands out for me. So when you were younger, did you always know that technology was something that you wanted to work in? Yes and no. Actually, I was thinking about being a pilot. I, I love the idea of flying and all. 
And it happened so that I was uh, pretty good with computer and I had the chance to be uh, put in touch with, I'm 46, you know, so it was not so obvious by then to have a computer in your hands by 10. Um, so I was lucky enough to have these opportunities through my parents and friends, uh, parents' friends. And um, yeah, it, it turned out that I was not so bad at that. I understood the logic. I loved it. And we were very few by then. And actually, it was not even a real serious job as such. I mean, when I joined the uh, engineering school, the guys were like, uh, yeah, it, maybe it's going to be something one day, like literally. And I was out of my promotion in 1999. And, you know, the 2000 bubble started. And it was crazy. People were like, uh, uh, the guys, we usually have the basement. Thing. Uh, what, how do you call them already? Yeah, computer, whatever. Buy them, not buy them, hire them a lot. Uh, they are known. Okay, raise the bar, raise the price, whatever. And uh, the thing started to go really ballistic by then. So, yeah, I was very happy to be in this line of work very early on and see the inception of it. Um, and I, I think it's incredible what it became. Even for us, very early on, we couldn't forecast that it would be such a big deal and an amazing transformation of our society. So on the topic of open source, as CrowdSec is a project where people can contribute back to, do you remember the first project that you contributed back to? Oh, yeah. And actually, funny enough, Let's take it the other way. It it was a financial contribution, right? The, the first meaningful contribution I made to open source was actually to open VPN. And James Yonan, uh, by then was you know it was barely uh, something anyone and in this but the, the software was brilliant and it was stable. And some of my customers needed like a VPN that they could rely on, and I created infrastructure by then for them. They were retailers, you know. And uh, the cash register needed to feed back the, the global database uh, overnight in a secure way. So we used Gems software. And I was like, okay, Gems, I don't know how to tell you, but I made money out of it. So if, it seems to me unfair that we don't have any sharing system with you. So let me like give you back 20% of what I do. You know, it's like, really? You're, you're, you're serious about that? I was like, yeah. I mean, and we started to have invoices every month. And he was like, wow, you're really serious about it. Let me come to Paris and, you know, hug you and, and discuss about what we can do further and all and what is your use case and all. And I was super proud to help James, you know, in these early days. Uh, on my own, I contributed to uh, uh, scripting, uh, you know, things like firewalls, for example. I did a lot of them. A lot of uh, also um, things around Magento. I was very involved into the Magento community, helping the community to take off and, you know, structure a bit in France. Um, you know, things like this. It's And uh, also on Arduino lately, I'm publishing things. I did stuff for the Ligno Aquarium or whatever. I love Instructable as well. I'm pretty sure you know about Instructables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a website where you can find anything like from food recipe to how to build a robot or whatever. And I love it because it's really in the open source and hacking uh, spirit. So I contribute also there. Everywhere I can, and obviously I've been financing or contributing or coding for our own products. So Naxi, uh, uh, Pagus, uh, I, I made some patch here and there. You know, it's it's not a constant thing for me. I'm not a real one. I'm not a real developer. But by the way, I'm a really bad developer. That's why I'm not developing. <laughs> I still code in stuff like Python and all. You know, for for the dummies. But uh, not saying that everyone coding in Python is a dummy. Huh? But for me, it's the easiest language I ever saw. <laughs> So it's really comfortable. So when you were talking about with OpenVPN and you got in touch with Jens, were there other people that you dealt with in open source that helped mold your views and opinions of how the open source community worked together? 
Yeah, I was always connected with those guys and uh, reading what they do, the, the pieces of article, what, the, what problems they face. For example, lately I was in contact with the Fay2Ban uh, original founder. And he's a very interesting person, right? He did this 16 years ago in Python to help others and himself because actually he was learning Python. So he wanted to have like the practical uh, exercise for his new Python skills. And I found that it was really interesting that he created something so big uh, out of just like uh, some kind of training, you know. And what I love the most is that interacting with the, the people, um, discussing what they have in mind when they create the software. Uh, if they have a business model, do it really for free. If, they, if it's just helping the others or if it was helping them and the others as a side effect, it's, it's another kind of economy. And people are so wrong thinking that it's... Uh, um, how to say that you lose something when you give you enrich yourself a lot when you give away like constantly considerably specifically when you deal with data so for example i don't believe in facebook model right i'm stupid obviously because this company is like tens of billions in valuation or 600 whatever billions in valuation but i don't trust on the long run this company are, are really going to thrive because people will fight back on their privacy on the data and stuff as well, Oracle. What is the model of Oracle? Honestly, selling selling a database, a heap of money, but they are better database for free everywhere. Honestly, and you're going to pay like millions? Uh, no, no, no. So what is Oracle doing now? Well, they are buying everything around to get new blood and new stuff to sell, and they are going into the cloud because of because of, look, people look around yourself. Everything is built on open source. Everything, like. There's no one service in the cloud that is not relying 99% on open source. What was really like outrageous for me is when the guys of OpenSSL got bashed, you know, because there was a vulnerability like in the past, and um, they were like, uh, they were backlash with this, like, okay, uh, it's it's impossible that such a large project doesn't, uh, you know, double check each other. People, they're doing for free this forever. They did great job. They changed the faces of internet as well. You didn't pay a dime for that and you dare complaining? Really? Well, make a donation. Excuse yourself. And eventually you won't go to the open source hell. And trust me, there are a lot of people there. Yeah, Oracle is definitely there. Um, I strongly believe that Oracle's <laughs> business model is actually just hostage taking because it seems that the businesses that I know that use Oracle, when I've asked them, like, why do you use Oracle? Their response is always, well, because we've used it in the past and it's just easier to pay the fees than to worry about changing. So yeah, vendor looking. I mean, this was a brilliant invention of the 80s, but nowadays, come on, that it's, it's just not sustainable anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore. There are so many brilliant databases out there that are faster, less expensive, you know, more modern and, and that can help you in so many much, uh, so many more ways than, you know, Oracle could. So yes, NASA is relying on Oracle, used to, but for how long, you know? Not sure it's gonna last forever, by far not. So on the security front, I had a conversation recently with Brian Callahan, who's an OpenBSD developer. And I asked him a question, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask you as well. Do you think that we will or we are getting to the point where the industry realizes that security is actually important? Or are we kind of cursed to stay in this mix of it's not a big deal and or or well, let's just look like we care about security because our customers want us to 
they want to think we care. There's so much to be said around this. Like, you know, I was in Black Hat UK recently and there was a brilliant speaker on stage and um, she was saying okay. like, you know, basically it's not the fault of the companies and this is getting a business like really across the board. Like insurance companies are super happy that actually ransomware exists because they have a new product to sell. So many EDR and all uh, editors are super happy about this ransomware way because they have more stuff to sell. And at some point, people will be paid within the company walls to plant malware themselves. So there's there's a whole economy living around this. So we are not about to see any shrinkage in this. It's just going to expand. Now, the real question is, to which extent, if you don't do a proper job, you are liable for that? Because say, for example, take Colony Capital, or Colony, Colony Pipeline, sorry. Colony Pipeline, what they had is a, a ransomware attack that was basically a VPN credential that has been leaked somehow, and the guys were not using two-factor authentication. All right. So for a small business, I can understand this, right? But if you're a pipeline and, and you're about to bring uh, gas to the whole America, how on earth can you not be responsible if you didn't activate the 2FA uh, thing? It's 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 borderline criminal. Sorry about it, but like these people didn't do the proper job. So to which extent will we consider that it's fine being incompetent, right? It's because it narrows down to this. We all know we rely on, our, on the digital life to whatever extent. We all know that our businesses are critically impacted if there's a problem. But until when will you be able to remove this uh, ransom from your taxation sheet at the end of the year? How come? You pay the ransom because you did a mistake and you can remove that from your taxes, really? I mean, I call it incitation from the government to actually do nothing about it, right? I mean, so yeah, that should be up to me, uh, to best of my knowledge, there should be some responsibility taken by everyone, the citizen, the company, the government, everyone. Now, how come you can get a computer, go online, wreck your life eventually, uh, and you are not tested or trained before to this? I mean, we would not accept that from you in the street with a car. If you want to drive a car, you have to drive, have a driving license. Everyone in the world, right? But you go on the internet, you can post yourself naked, whatever, or answer a call of whomever, whatever. This thing will wreck your life forever. And, and, and the government is not doing anything about like uh, training e-citizens, thinking that, you know, the people that are editing the software are the sole responsible for this. Sorry, it's not true. And same goes for the, for the businesses. They have to be responsible and, and held accountable for that. I never saw any trial where the guy were held accountable for that. But when your password, like SolarWind, seriously look like they had a shitty password somewhere in the FTP, right? And they are not responsible? Really? I cannot quote them for not being uh, careful enough with my sensitive data? Uh, come on, that doesn't sound right to me. So there's a, you know, there's several things to do, but I think everybody, it's in everybody's mind, it's top of the mind now. And, and thanks to ransomware somehow, because it's nothing new, right? So ransomware is nothing new, right? It's not a hacking technique or cyber criminal technique that arise uh, lately. It's not true. It's just the best ever monetization of what the guy did forever for the last 40 years. It's just a new way of monetizing it. Discreet, quick, untraceable, you know, comfortable for them. So when you get around somewhere, people, think of it as being, uh, as you paying your technical debt at the highest possible price. Yeah, on the 
the business side, when you're talking about the pipeline, I remembered thinking back to, I forget what year it was now. I think it was mid 2010s where uh, retailer target was hit and somebody was able to get a copy of their, their database, which had copies and it saved everybody's mm -hmm. credit card information, their debit card numbers, their pins. And like target was saving information that they legally were not allowed to save. They were not only saving it, they were saving it in plain text. And then the security of, the, of their database was obviously crap. And at the end of the day, they weren't really held responsible. The, the consumer, oh. th they had to deal with all the fallout. And Target was like, oh, well, we'll, we'll give you a year of credit monitoring, which costs like $50 to each person. And the, you know, the individual consumer then had to deal with years of potential problems because Target made a bad decision. They didn't do things properly. And I can kind of understand from the business side, I don't agree with it, but I can understand why companies like Target would say, well, why should we care? Because it's not going to affect us. Yeah, well, there are two things here. The first one is European one, which I actually uh, really agree with, which is called GDPR. You know, this is our solution to the problem. If you store something that you don't need, and if you don't secure it properly, you can be held accountable for that. And not just, you know, in a minor way, it can cost you percentage, direct percentage of your global turnover. That speaks for some serious retaliation capabilities here. And um, I totally agree with this direction. This is the way we should do it. Everybody knows that if you have to respect GDPR, you're exposing yourself to potential retaliation on your turnover globally. So no one is going to jail, right? We are striking at the best possible place, the wallet. And what we see now is this gray zone war, right? If you have a weapon, like say nuclear bomb, you cannot use it. It's a strong deterrent, but you absolutely cannot use it because it's going to wreck lives and, and ruin countries and infrastructure and everything. So the most destructive your weapon is, the less you can use it. The least destructive your weapon is, the most you can use it. So look at what you know some countries are doing lately. They are going, you know, all gun blazing over the internet because there's no casualties. Nobody dies, right? Nobody dies. Nothing is destroyed. But billions of intellectual property are stolen. Like zillions of credits in whatever fiat currency you want are stolen. And this is a soft war, right? It's a gray zone war that is happening because those weapons don't destroy lives or infrastructure. So, you know, they can use them every day if they want. And it's, it's just going to grow giantly, gigantically. And it's, it's what's happening now. And I think people are getting aware of that, understanding that it cannot go, we cannot go you know, that road, down that road forever. We have to do something about it. So let me kind of pivot and ask this question. And that is, what are things that you see that are being developed? Stick to like just open source and things like that. What are things that you see being developed that you feel are going to be able to tackle the problems that we're going to have in the future? Well, first of all, first of all Actually, really, the, uh, the open source as such is an extremely good way of uh, progressing in this uh, direction, you know, to a better security for everyone. Because as a matter of fact, most of the time, it's free. So you cannot put constraints on the money on the wallet if you want everyone to defend himself. Because we think like rich countries, right? But think about Africa. If you want to protect like Africans uh, in their universities and they have a GDP that is like one fraction of what uh, uh, GDP of US was uh, a century ago, 
how do you want them to compete in terms of means? It's impossible, right? We have to level the game. And leveling the game through open source is the key. I mean, buying extremely expensive products might protect you. It's not even sure. Look at what happened. You know, most of the companies that have been hacked lately, they had hundreds of millions uh, in cybersecurity budget. It didn't prevent anything from happening, honestly. This is the exact same thing as being certified. Your ISO, brilliant. Your PCI, brilliant. Your BOL or HIPS, brilliant. Have you been compromised? Yes. Did it protect you? No. Period. You have last the latest EDR that cost a tone per workstation. Did it prevent you in any way from being breached? No. Right. So first of all, let's put it aside. It's not a money problem. Meaning, or or it is in the way that you know making it for free will help a lot. It's also I trust highly in every participative uh, uh, things like OSEC, MISP or the th people that are working at MITR, MITR, ATT&CK, you know, all the people that are giving their time, thinking about like how we can make it better, or OWASP, you know what I mean? There's a lot of initiative lately. All of those people are helping. And I I'm thinking that in the next years, uh, they are the one that will be considered as, uh, you know, critical uh, gears into the right direction. So if I have to, to quote some of them, Wazoo, Osim, uh, you know, they are free. Uh, we have a lot of respect for fake to ban, obviously. The MIS project, uh, they are seeing like, uh, I don't know, OZINT framework, for example, that is great as well. OpenSense, I love OpenSense. Uh, all the distros that you can run on your router uh, that are for free, like OpenWRT. Um, th those people are constantly snort. Uh, you know, all of those, they help. They definitely help. And um, I'm really proud of what's happening. And no, there is no competition. Sorry to say. You know, OpenCTI, you know, we all love them. We have no competitors in the sense that we are all aiming for a market that is so big, for a problem that is so big, that we, even all of us all together, we wouldn't be able to solve it. So yes, go guys, we are all with you. We're gonna be collaborating with anyone asking to collaborate with us. And um, this is where I think also there's a definitely better model. We are not directly competing with each other. It's just not true, you know. Uh, we can just reinforce each other. Like if OpenCTI want my my CTI, uh, I, I'm I'm going to give them gladly. It's not a problem, and will be considered as of vital importance. And at some point, we will be uh, paid for that in a way or another. That's the way we should think about cybersecurity. So congrats and kudos to everyone doing great job in the space of cybersecurity. To people like that, super known like the guys of GSEC and PAX, which are doing specific libraries for the Linux kernel. Thank you guys for two decades of great work, you know, and for OpenSSL and all the team around the world that are making libs libraries that you can leverage in your code without thinking twice about like whether the cryptographic background is good. Yes, it's good. It's globally super good. We make cars run on them. We even have rovers on Mars running on open source. Come on, how trustable is that? That's the best you can ever get, actually. Okay, so to flip that question on its head, are there things that you think the open source community should be focusing more on and things that we can do better than what we are right now? Yeah, well, I'm really glad that we see more and more initiatives in the AI space because uh, it's something that's a bit behind. So thank you to Google for, for example, to open source part of its work on this, uh, like TensorFlow and all, so that the greatest number can benefit from it. It was a huge discussion uh, in Sergey's uh, office, you know, like whether they should or not open source part of what they are doing in AI. So AI can definitely benefit from more collaboration. Uh, cybersecurity 
the, the only hope for mankind to have somehow a safe internet is cybersecurity collaboration and participation. So um, more of those uh, initiatives constantly down the line. And I would love to have something about uh, research. You know, researchers are, are using a lot of open source uh, products and tools. And I think we need to help them because most of us wouldn't be there if if no one had found like vaccination already lately, obviously, but in the past, we should help them as much as we can, you know, providing hardware, providing software, providing libraries, providing, you know, anything we can uh, to help uh, uh, this going faster and further because we have deep down problems to solve as a mankind, as mankind you know, uh, you know, heat, uh, consuming everything, this global warming, we are not able to to travel between stars or between even uh, close by a planet uh, because we don't have any uh, way of freezing ourselves and defreezing ourselves. So all of this we can help, being coders, being open sourcers. And uh, I think it's just, uh, we are day one in open source. It's weird to say this because it's like, it's more than four decades already, but we are still day one. Anybody can code, anybody can get into it. Anybody can make a difference and build something and aggregate. What is the point of influencers? Come on, to make you buy something, they are losing their time. They are losing and wasting our brain cells. Whereas the same person or someone else that want to influence the world can do it through open source. And it's a way better things to do for everyone. And no worries, you will never be left aside or, or lose money or not earn enough. I don't know any decent open source scholar that is not making a living out of it. Come on, they just become superstars from pretty much all of them. Nobody has, has money issues in this. So step into the space, share, get richer out of, of sharing because this is what people don't understand. You get richer by sharing. This, you know, knowledge is the only thing that you can replicate as many times as you want without losing anything, right? Divide a, a banknote, you will lose it. Divide knowledge, you're richer. So you bring up AI, and that's one that I find really interesting, not just from the aspect of AI being able to tackle interesting problems, but there's some differences in the way AI works and the way we create our AI models that kind of, it, it, I don't want to say it's at odds with open source, but there's a complication there. For instance, with source code, I can put source code out there. Anyone else can compile it and be able to come out with, you know, the same binary that, that I have. With AI, because you're running an algorithm on a data set, there's a question of, well, how reproducible is it? And you can't just share the data set because there's there's obviously lots of privacy concerns there depending on what the data is. And, and one other thing that I think is interesting is when we get results out of an AI model, sometimes we don't actually know why we got the results that we got. I know there was a thing, I think it was mm -hmm. Google maybe, or it was OpenAI or one of those companies uh, last year that did a protein folding model. And they were able to get the result that was like, almost perfect, super fast. And it wasn't just the shock of, wow, that, that worked really well, but how did it work that well? Like we had no expectation that it was gonna be that good. And what did it figure out? Like, did it figure out some underlying property of biochemistry that we haven't figured out that we should know? Mm -hmm. No, you're right with this data model and this data set that we need to train the models. And so first of all, we are in, in an amazing moment where everything is exponential, right? So the money emission a bit too much, right? But everything else is exponential. Research, uh, uh, in AI, in cyber, in everything, in blockchain, everything is going exponential. Even the number of rockets we're sending to space and all, that's very impressive. I love living in these times. 
So AI, the problem is you're right. We need a lot of data to train them. Now, the good thing is crypto, crypto uh, people that cipher data are, are coming out with new ways of you not knowing what you deal with, but still being able to run your, your algorithm on it. Or even not running your algorithm, but being able to make them run in a context that is, for example, in a foreign place that you don't want to export your software to. So you can have some things that are hidden and still make a set where the AI can train, right? And this is also something we're thinking about. Like, let me give you an example in our space. If we use IP data, because our whole system is based on IP addresses, right? It's considered a personal data in Europe with, as per GDPR. So we cannot do whatever we want with this, right? You can argue it's, it is or it's not a personal data, but it is. As, as per the law, it is, right? So if we want, for example, to write down that this IP address is dangerous and take a smart contract around it in the blockchain, we cannot expose directly the IP as such because we would be in violation of GDPR already for the fact that we would store it forever because it's a blockchain, for God's sake. So then what it narrows down to, storing something that nobody can directly peer into, but that would benefit everyone. And the same thinking, so we have a brilliant company in France called Cosmian that is doing this. So I don't understand exactly the gears inside because I'm not familiar with this uh, ciphering uh, algorithm at all. But what basically render possible that you can share data across different peers that you don't trust with zero trust and still exploit them, make something out of it without them having a direct knowledge of it. And I think the future of AI is somewhat around those things. Not knowing directly what it's dealing with, but still dealing with a relevant set as uh, in the way that the data are interconnected with each other properly, right? And maybe they will figure out things that we don't. Maybe they will even uncover the real data behind, but it's probably one of the way of solving the problem. Anonymized data sets, but mm -hmm. that's still relevant. So to close out the interview, what are some things that you would give as advice to other people who are starting their careers in technology? Huh. That's an interesting one. First of all, you, you're stepping into the business at the best possible moment. We need everything. We need every hand, you know, and there's money all across the board in every place. You know, it's the market are gorgeous for that. If you need funding and you are not stupid and you're like a proper businessman, you will get VCs knocking at your door the next day. So already a brilliant moment for doing so. I would advise you to first go into a company you like, learn your trade, not, you know, uh, get a cold start in this, um, make a network for yourself, make a name eventually for yourself, uh, own your skills, and associate with people that have very different uh, skill sets, right? N nearly no business took off with only specialists in this or that. You need to have like a collaboration of business-minded people, technically-minded people, and so on and forth. So find yourself associate. Don't be alone at the top. Because you might be a genius, but not enough to pull it off by yourself, pull it off by yourself, or you will burn in the process. So it's not so cool, right? And maybe after five years, you know, be your own boss. G gather a team around yourself that really looks to, to tackle a problem and, and create value. You will be able to, to revolutionize something. I don't trust a large company uh, employing like a hundred of thousands of people will still be the model in years from now. Actually, small, very compact, efficient group have been proven, at least in IT, uh, as being far more efficient. Look at Gmail, for example. Half of the world is using Gmail. It's a two-pizza team. It's eight people, right? The core of iOS, eight people. 
you cannot pull like a really big thing in IT with a huge massive team. If we take back the Oracle example, if you want to modify one thing in Oracle, it will take months, if not years. It, agility is lost in this. So be agile, take a small compact group of experts and, and try to mix match your, your skills so that, you know, you are not alone at the top and don't, you're not blindsided on some, on some side. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So Philip, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It's been great talking with you. Um, and I will put links in the show notes uh, to CrowdSec for people to check out. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Anytime you want, we have another discussion, right? All right. Have a good day. Good day.